We return to our show and our discussion on the repression in eastern Ukraine that has not been reported at all to the American public with our guest, Mike Whitney. So that being said, you have this widespread repression. You have in May 2nd of 2014, you have this horrific fire setting of the trade union's house in Odessa in which 39 people were Russian-speaking southern Ukrainians were either killed, uh, burned alive, or, or suffocated. Another 250 were injured at the hands of these, mainly these right-sector neo-fascists, while post-coup, police just stood by. And what I wanted to ask you to start off with, I know you've, you're familiar with John Brennan, our former CIA director, and, and a lot of his shenanigans domestically and such, but also another Russia-phobe, MSNBC expert analyst on Russia. He apparently had just visited Ukraine and denied he was there originally, but then they admitted he was there and met with security officials. Can we obviously draw a straight line between the repression in Ukraine following the coup with U.S. foreign policy interest and dictates? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, there's a completely straight line. As a matter of fact, it might be that the United States did not want to team up with these neo-Nazis and the the banderistas from Stefan Pandera, who was a hero to these people who, uh, you know, we're not talking about a far-right group. We're talking about people who parade around in Nazi uniforms and are directly connected with their hero, Stefan Bandera, Mm -hmm. who was not only of Polish descent, but was directly implicated in atrocities of uh, the Holocaust. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, apart from killing uh, tons of Ukrainian and Polish civilians. But, you know, the United States was in quite a pickle because after the coup, there was a lot of conflict, basically a civil war against the people who were opposed to the coup d'etat that was uh, engineered by Washington. And so uh, when Brennan visited, that was just preceded the first major crackdown, and they teamed up with Bandera's group, the Azov Brigade, and they basically conceded parts of the government, like you said, cabinet posts, primarily of most importance is the security apparatus, which they operate to this day. So they mm-hmm. have both the surveillance and the on-the-ground muscle to enforce their rules. And so let's just get back to the CIA. Mm-hmm. It's not just the CIA that was implicated in establishing a setting up the bureaus of government. It was also the FBI which is left out of this. But the FBI, like you referred to that guy's comment, how would they even know that if they weren't on the ground over there? Mm-hmm. So there was direct involvement in the United States in setting up this puppet government, which is not in the interest of the people at all. And yeah, they were directly involved in not only repeated assaults on the Russian-speaking regions, the Donbass area, where 90% of the people are basically not only speak Russian, but are sympathetic to Russia as far as ideologically. So... It's not surprising that there are mass graves because the shelling, the random shelling and the infiltration and the torture has gone on since 2014, which is like uh, eight years now. Especially what's going on. Let me just finish by saying that the new president, Vladimir Zelensky, the former comedian who is now the president of Ukraine, has very little power if he doesn't connect, if he doesn't work with the security apparatus. You know, he might be a well-intended guy, but he basically has to move in the direction of his sponsors, the United States, and the security apparatus that he's working with. So he is really in a tight jam right now. Well, that's a great point, because he's been dictating the policy towards Crimea as well, which is cutting off the water and those types of things. And just one other point about what you just said. With Zelensky, I can just imagine 
if he strayed from the role that he's supposed to be doing, his life is the price that very likely would be the payment for not going along. Exactly. You know, that's the, exactly. That, he has no real power. I'm not. I'm not quite sure why he took the job to begin with, because yeah. anyone from the outside could Jeez. see that he was just going to be a puppet. Right. But yeah, John Brennan was very intimately involved in the construction of the government and its leanings, and since then there's really been no independent free and fair elections. And, you know, there's been a mass exodus. It's not just the killing fields in eastern Ukraine, but the young people are leaving because... The Ukrainian uh, currency is hyperinflationary. There's no future there. Industry has been crushed, and uh, it's really a horrible life with no future. You have to mention that the escalation has happened recently because the Ukrainian troops, 100,000 of them, have moved towards the surrounding area of the Donbass. Before we get to the escalation, I, I wanted to go back, though, because I want this is really important for sure. our audience. John Brennan, you know, there's this invisible hand of the of the U.S., except it's not invisible if you study history and understand this stuff. But wasn't there an initial denial that he was even there? And, yeah, it was, kind of, it was kind of funny, yeah. really, because he showed up, he completely denied it, and then someone produced photographs of him at the airport that were dated, and uh, they were put on the Internet, and so they kind of ridiculously had to admit that he was there. But it was the first crackdown, okay, so they sent the military down and uh, fought these very competent but independent militias down in the Donbass, and they were fended off by the people in the Donbass, the Russian-speaking people. But the first crackdown was just a week after Brennan showed up. Now, there was a second appearance of a U.S. official that went there, and there was a second big crackdown. That was Joe Biden, okay? So it was clear that they were getting their direct orders, their marching orders from Washington. Didn't Biden visit on a number of occasions? It wasn't just a single visit, right? Yeah, but at this particular time, the consecutive nature of these attacks on the Donbass, you know, both times were repelled, were kind of interesting just chronologically because they just followed the appearance of a prominent U.S. official. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, listen, I want to remind listeners we're visiting with the distinguished investigative journalist Mike Whitney from the state of, of Washington. So, Mike, I interrupted you. You were talking about the, the most recent aggression that is going on towards the Donbass area and, and internally in Ukraine. Go ahead and continue that update. Well, first of all, you have to understand that in 2014, when there was finally some agreement drawn up in Geneva with the Ukrainian government under Poroshenko, they agreed to the Minsk agreements. Okay, Now, the Minsk agreements stipulate quite clearly that they will take steps to change their constitution to allow for the basic autonomy, uh, the Donbass region, which is predominantly Russian-speaking and sympathetic, that they will integrate it back into the Ukrainian government, but it will have virtual autonomy. That way they feel that the people, the citizens down there, feel that they'll be safe from the persecution that they know is coming from the far-right fanatics. Mm-hmm. They have never, you know, Russia keeps going back to its original gr- agreements. It's a treaty agreement, and uh, they just keep insisting that those... What, uh, were, what were the signatories? Be, it was the Ukraine, it was Russia, and a couple of the Donbass signatories... Well, Russia was was, uh, privy to the agreement, but they were not co-signer in the agreement. It's just between the leaders in the Donbass and the people in the government. And they've never implemented those, but those tacitly were agreed to by the United States and NATO and everything else, you know. So it's that sticking point that is 
it's the only way forward because they are not right. going to reintegrate with the state if they know that there's going to be these mass killing fields. And, uh, and I mean, it's just, a, it's just another treaty that's just <clears throat> worthless when it comes to the West. I mean, I, we, you know, we were talking about this last week about the INF treaty was, was torn up. The Iran treaty. You go right down the list mm-hmm. with these treaties if they don't serve the immediate impulsive types of interests of the United States, then they're trashed. Yeah. So let's get on to this recent provocation, because we could just be days or weeks away from a serious war. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't know what the escalation would be. But the United States has instructed the Ukrainian leadership to push this army down towards the Donbass. So now it's encircling that area and prepared for fighting. And, of course, in the U.S. media, all they're talking about is a movement of Russian troops, because we know that Russia is going to protect those people in the event of some kind of onslaught. Let me stop you there real quick, because there was Finian Cunningham, I think. Is Cunningham, yeah. Yeah, he did a good piece citing some type of satellite imagery that proved to be some 300 kilometers away from the actual Ukraine-Russian border. Meanwhile, that imagery was misrepresented by a number of the mainstream media's presentations as false proof that Russia had all of this military hardware and troop activity on the Russian-Ukrainian border. This is a typical deceitful and misleading propaganda that prepares the American public for accepting yet another potential war conflict. This is a couple of weeks ago. Now I'm sure Russia is motivating their forces in response to the West and NATO's forces. But again, that whole charade that Russia was motivating forces to invade Ukraine was completely denied by Russia and lacked any evidentiary basis. Not to mention they have the right to motivate their troops within their own borders any way they want. But I think they were very careful not to give any type of inclination that NATO could use as a justification, a false justification to raise concern in the West. But is that your understanding, by the way? Yeah, but that myth has not been dispelled in the U.S. media. People still think that the aggression is on the part of Russia, who is down there controlling. Keep in mind that the the Donbass area is roughly 500 miles from Moscow. And if you know history at all, you know that uh, invasions from the West have really been a problem in the past as far as Napoleon and Hitler, etc. So they take this very seriously. You also know the history of NATO, which has doubled in size since the fall of the Berlin Wall. And since then, the new 14 additional countries have all been pushing eastward. So all of those are on the, now on the doorstep of Russia. So we've gotten to the point where we have missile systems that are deployed in both Romania and Poland, and now they're threatening to include Ukraine, which was a part of the Soviet Union, and is seven minutes by missile to Moscow, and they're threatening to not only include it in this hostile military force, which is NATO, that it keeps expanding towards Russia, but it's also going to deploy missile systems, and it's threatening to do the same in Georgia, which is even closer to Moscow. So this is something where Putin finally came out and said, you know, we're done. We've tried to negotiate, and we're providing this ultimatum. And it has sound very harsh and very belligerent in the U.S. media, but he said it's not intended to be harsh or belligerent at all. The response would be exactly the same for Washington if Russia was setting up missile systems in, say, Alberta or on the Mexican borderline. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we know what the Cuban Missile Crisis brought, so you know that we take our security entirely serious. So Russia is just putting down some red lines and saying, we're not going to do this, guys, and if we do, 
we're going to have to take action. I think it's long time in coming because I remember 10 years ago when they were talking about deploying the supposedly uh, tactical defensive missile system, Star Wars system in Romania and Poland, and realizing that, as Putin has pointed out many times, these missile systems, yes, they can, in theory, uh, prevent missiles from coming in and hitting the country they're defending, but they can be exchanged, the platforms, with regular offensive nuclear ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. And so he's just not going to accept that. So the whole thing has been a ruse from the beginning. And, you know, 10 years ago, I was thinking to myself, you know, Russia's got to take these systems out. They can't allow these things to go up. I mean, it's basically sticking a knife to their heart. And how can you trust the people that are installing them? You know, they have backed away from treaties whenever they... So I'd like you to go back and explain that again, just to be clear. What you're saying is that defensive platforms are synonymous with platforms that can be turned into offensive platforms with little ease. Exactly. And okay. anyone can go to I'll send you a link and you can put it on your site. Yeah. Uh, there, there are a number of sites on YouTube where Putin is actually talking to the media representatives or journalists from the West and explaining exactly what the issue is because it's never explained to the American people right. what's actually happening. These platforms can be used for offensiveness. And keep in mind, these platforms exist in South Korea as well, and they want to put them in different places in the stands, okay, so Uzbekistan and stuff like that. So the determination from the very beginning to surround and balkanize Russia, even though after the communist regime collapsed, has never stopped. They mm-hmm. still think Russia is too big. They want to split it up. As uh, John McCain said, they basically want to turn it into a giant gas station in three or four different parts so that they don't pose any kind of nationalistic geopolitical problem for them and their inexorable attempt to encircle China and control China's development in the future. So that's geopolitically, in a nutshell, what's going on. Yeah, that's a great analysis. So let's go back to Putin here, because it is really interesting. When you hear Putin's words, he mentions things that I think I certainly can relate to. It sounds like a national security interest that any country would have on subject A, B, and C, that type of thing. And you mentioned he did the same thing with the missile systems. In other words, we get misled to believe, oh, it's a defensive missile system. Why should Russia be upset about that? When, in fact, it's because it can so easily be converted to an offensive one. That's why they're upset. So we covered last week some words that Putin said on December 1st, just before rolling out this ultimatum and defensive but stern conditions and red line documents that followed. But yesterday or the day before, he had a press conference that I believe you're familiar with. Can you tell us what else? I mean, I think that's part of what this show really seeks to do. We never get the words in the perspective of Russia or any other, you know, quote unquote adversary. What we get is a prefabbed confabulation of what we want the U.S. public to think about them, not their own words. Can you, from the Putin's perspective in his press conference, I think, was, was it a press conference or was it some other yeah, type of Yeah, he gave like a, a marathon three-hour press conference yesterday. Mm-hmm. The reason they never publish or have him on camera is because he's invariably reasonable, he's a thoughtful guy, and he presents himself in a way that is completely non-aggressive, non-threatening, and he completely turns the tables on the narrative of the West, which is there being the aggressor. And he's going like, guys, we've, got, we've moved as back as far as we can. You're on our doorstep now. We can't allow you to put missiles there. 
So, I mean, he strikes me as an entirely reasonable guy and just doing what's in the interest of his own people as far as national security. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. A leader in his position would be considered completely immoral and irresponsible if he didn't take the defense of his people seriously. Mm-hmm. And so after the coup d'etat in Ukraine and what's going on in Syria, then uh, I think, you know, he's just doing what he has to do, what he feels obligated to do. He just basically... As a leader, he just wants to sell his natural gas and oil to Russia so that he can build up the coffers and, uh, and execute and implement the social programs that he wants to, but he's constantly mm-hmm. frustrated. Keep in mind that Nord Stream, which has been finished, and it's the pipeline that transfers Russian gas to Europe, to Germany principally, and then throughout Europe, has been uh, blocked by U.S. initiatives for the longest time, for at least six months, and it's ready to go, but basically... You know, the free market is only supposed to operate as long as it's operating in the interest of the people who run the United States. Mm. So it's not in their interest for Russia to be selling gas to Europe, getting wealthier and stronger, when their ultimate goal for Russia is to fragment it so that it can be used as a staging ground against uh, China. As a result, then Germany and the, and the Europe are paying higher prices than they normally would if, if it was Russian gas coming through, right? Yeah, so in the next three months, it's going to skyrocket because still nothing has been finalized. So they've managed to have their, the United States has their puppets in Europe that are, are keep it's extending really, yeah. more and more red tape and making it impossible for this deal to go through, even though it's up and running, and even though the people in Northern Europe are paying much higher prices for right. natural gas to heat their homes than, than need be. What Putin said yesterday, he basically said that, before you go there, and I, I'm sorry sure. to keep interrupting you, but you're bringing up some really, really important points. Just real quickly, so just so that folks know, when these European countries, they are so, it's like a drug addiction. The United States has so much force in the international economy that they're all attached to that they have to carry water for U.S. interests despite their own interests. And so mm-hmm. even though this is a German decision to not open up that pipeline, I would suspect, right? It, it's really influenced by this is what might happen if you do do that, despite our interest for you to not do that from the United States. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, if the United States was operating as it actually operates, which is not in its national security interest, but for the corporations that are selling uh, LNG, you know, you know, sell our own gas to Germany, which is much more expensive to produce and much more expensive for the German people, which is one of the goals, then what they need to do is unfairly shut Russia out of the market, which is, of course, is what they're doing. So this is a corporate and a money deal as well as it is a geopolitical strategy. Mm-hmm. So, But none of this helps the German people or the European people, and none of it is in the spirit of the WTO strict rules and guidelines. You can't just shut someone out of the market militarily because you don't like, because they're not operating well, in monop- geopolitical interest. It's There's monop- rules about that. Yeah, and Russia keeps bringing those up to the WTO but they're shoved aside because they just don't have the power. It's crazy. It's monopoly capitalism is what it is. It's like the, the strongest. Completely. Yeah. You were going to go back to Putin's. Yesterday, say, in, yeah. in essence, he just said, and these are his own words, he said, it's you who must give us guarantees mm-hmm. and give them immediately. Now, we're not going to have idle talk about it for decades. Those are mm-hmm. his words. Mm-hmm. He said, we need to know precisely and have in written form what you intend to do. Are you going to meet our expectations and our demands or... Are we going to have to act unilaterally? Now, what does that mean? You and I go back a long ways, and we remember that Putin gave 
in 2015, wasn't it, a speech at the U.N. where he warned them, he said, this, things are out of hand in Syria. We're not going to let another country go the way of Iraq. We're not going to let another country go the way of a Libya because you're creating too much stability, too much jihadism that is spreading over its borders, too much massive migrations out of the country. We are going to take a role in stabilizing Syria, and no one knew what he meant by that. Mm-hmm. And the next day, he began the deployment of uh, military cargo, as well as their fighter jets. Air Force, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is overnight it changed the whole strategic dynamic in Syria, mainly because the United States had just worked out a deal with Turkey for the Interlick Air Base. Okay, now that's strategically located, so they could have implemented a no-fly zone over all of Syria. Maybe I'm talking about this too fast. But as soon as the Hillary Clinton... Uh, supported no-fly zone came into place, which it did with Libya as well. Putin could see the handwriting on the wall. He could see the United States was going to drive another country into anarchy. And he just said, that's not going to happen. We're going to get involved, and we're going to stop that from happening because we don't want the kind of instability and chaos that you're creating across the Middle East, which is a strategic location for energy. So he got involved, but ever since then, things have moved in Assad's direction. Well, and also, Russia had a vested interest in this burgeoning extremist elements that were just all over Syria, and they've had their own issues with extremism on their borders as well. So that was part of their, I think, impetus as well. Well, not just on their borders, because you you probably remember the conversation that Putin had with George Bush Jr., okay? When he told him, he said, look, we have information, solid intelligence, that you are supporting the jihadists, providing material and weaponry for the jihadists that are fighting in Chechnya and tearing apart right. our country. That's okay? right. That's right. And, and George Bush, understandably, said, I don't know anything about that, but I'll look into it. Well, he looked into it, and he found it was true. But when Putin complained a month later, he said, well, what are you going to do about this? He got a terse note back from the head of the CIA saying, well, we reserve the right to arm and defend anyone who is fighting for national autonomy. So they're basically, they're defining these uh, Chechen terrorists, who are Islamic terrorists, jihadists, as freedom fighters. Right. And uh, defending their right, they didn't even deny it. Mm-hmm. So this was in the interviews with uh, Oliver Stone and Putin. It's like, and he, you know, uh, this is the constant situation that the Russian leadership is left with. Brazen rejection of international law and the brazen just doing whatever we're going to do because that's what we're going to do. And just scratching their heads and walking away like, okay, well, now we've gotten to a point where the other country has its own red lines, and we're going to see what's going to happen. Outstanding analysis, Mike. Again, let me just remind listeners, we're joined with Mike Whitney, investigative journalist, and that was very well put together analysis. Let me close the show with having you comment on one more thing. I mean, we just got a couple of more minutes left, but this is a piece that just came out on December 16th of 2021. Only two countries voted against the UN resolution condemning Nazism, okay? So there's this Russian sponsored UN General Assembly resolution condemning Nazism, neo-Nazism, and all forms of racism. The United States and Ukraine were the only two countries to vote against it. There were some over 100 countries that voted for it, and there was a bunch of countries that abstained, mainly U.S. allies, for probably what we already mentioned, right, that if you vote against us, there's going to be consequences type of thing. But it's specific to this resurgence of right-wing 
elements throughout Europe and other places as well that we pretend to be concerned about here in our own country as well. Do, do you want to just close the show with any, any comments about the hypocrisy here of the United States and Ukraine? Well, it's, a, it's only hypocrisy if people know about it, and people are not going to know about that initiative. And the initiative, only two countries voted for it because it is explicit support for Nazism, explicit support for far-right extremist Nazism. And the United States and Ukraine were the only countries in the world that voted for that. I mean, I just, I can't underscore that enough. But I want to finish with one little thing that we need to think about, that your listeners need to think about. We don't know what the intention here is in fighting for eastern Ukraine. It could be a big feint so that the United States lures Russia into what they think will be a Vietnam-type quagmire. If there's an outbreak of violence in that area, Russia is going to have to get involved. Now, the people who are very pro-Russian are saying, well, they're just going to wipe, you know, they're definitely at an advantage. But that doesn't mean that they can't conduct some sort of, some kind of guerrilla war that will blacken Russia's eye in the eyes of Europe and then block mm-hmm. Nord Stream and other forms of commerce from happening and, and damage Russia very severely. Mm-hmm. So it's a very touchy situation, something that everyone should be aware of. You'll have to look about it in the news because all you see in the news is 95% COVID, COVID, COVID. But regardless, it's worth paying attention to. I think you're right, and I think this show and shows like it have brought an enormous amount of evidence to the table that, like you said, I think you said it very well, it's not hypocrisy if nobody knows about it, and that's the kind of blockade of information that our mainstream media is so complicit in and has taken us down this path in a fascist direction ourselves for our own country. A profoundly ignorant country is much more vulnerable to these very severe forms of non-democratic initiatives that we're talking about. Mike, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for your analysis tonight. If people are interested in accessing some of your work, what's the best way they can do that? I usually appear on Global Research and at the UNS Review. And, you know, oftentimes at uh, Paul Craig Roberts' site. Very good. Hey, thank you. Thank I, you for having me, Pedro. Thank you for staying on top of all these issues and helping us understand some of the things that fall through the cracks here that people are not even aware of. It's been my great pleasure. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Check out the